Welcome to Work, Rest and Pay. In this podcast, we look at the future of work and pay through the lenses of both employers and employees. And we explore practical scenarios and potential innovative ways forward. I'm your host, Laura Whitplura, and I'm ADP's External Communications Manager here in the UK. So today we are going to talk about approaches to embedding gender parity strategies into the future of work debate and particularly when it comes to the retail sector. So some suggest that the pandemic and the sort of related economic downturn have impacted women more severely than men, partially actually reopening gaps that had already been closed. But at the same time, the World Economic Forum recently stated that leaders now have an unprecedented opportunity to build more resilient and gender equal economies. So joining us to discuss these topics and much more is Kelly Thompson. Kelly um, is a partner in employment, engagement and equality um, at the international law firm RPC. As well as supporting clients to deliver their equality priorities, Kelly also co-leads the firm's own gender work stream, which looks to improve gender equality outcomes for the firm's people. Her equality work has most recently led her to becoming co-host of renowned weekly equality podcast, The Fix with Michelle King, where they interview remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. We are super excited to have you on this podcast. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here and talking about my favourite topic as well. We also have today um, Sarah Massey joining us, who's ADP's Legal Director for UK and Ireland. You're also very welcome to the discussion, Sarah. Thanks, Laura, for inviting me. I'm really interested in what we're going to discuss today. Great. So, yeah, there is lots to discuss. But what we thought we'd do is we would look at some of the recent developments in this area to touch on sort of what that tells us in this landscape and to get that insight and expertise, especially from Kelly. So a couple of things to mention in particular, for instance, on the equal pay front in the UK, and we had the recent Supreme Court ruling which put a spotlight on retail. So we're going to look at that. We also obviously have had delays to the gender pay gap reporting due to the pandemic. Um, so we'll take a look at that as well and the implications of that. And then finally, we thought we would delve a little bit into the World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report. So let's dive into some of the detail and talk about some of the implications and ways forward. So turning to you, Kelly, first, um, it would be really great if you are able to um, sort of summarise the Supreme Court ruling on equal on that equal pay case um, that we've seen in the last few months, um, which was brought forward by the Asda shop floor workers and what this potentially means, I suppose, for retail down the line and for this entire discussion we're having today. Sure, I'm really happy to. And it's a case that's had lots of fanfare. It's always yes. exciting as an employment lawyer when an employment case has fanfare outside of just employment publications and it appears in the real world news, which which this ASDA case certainly did. Um, I think the first thing to say is it's the latest in a really long running case, which equal pay cases usually are. They go on for years and years. Um, and And as you said, Laura, the claimants are... Uh, employed by ASDA and their shop floor workers essentially they're in the ASDA retail business and they're predominantly women um, and what they're bring what they're doing is bringing equal pay claims in which they say our jobs on the shop floor are of equal value 
with um, comparison jobs that we're going to point to in the ASDA distribution centre. So it's a comparison between two different parts of the ASDA business. And lo and behold, the distribution centre jobs are predominantly performed by men. So that's where the kind of gender, gender kind of comparison comes in. The thing about equal pay claims is that they're super complicated um, and there's a whole series of hurdles that any claimants have to overcome um, before they can even get the claim off the starting blocks at all, before you get into all the interesting complex arguments about whether the jobs are of equal value. They have to be able to point to a valid comparator, so someone else of, of the opposite gender who's paid more than them. So that's what this particular Supreme Court judgment was all about. And I think sometimes that's missed in the commentary. It's very narrow what this case is looking at. It's really important, but it's looking at quite a narrow issue. So what they were doing was saying, right, here, here's a man employed in the distribution centre. That's my comparator. But because their comparator is employed not at the same establishment, so it's not someone in the same store as them. It's somebody in a completely different establishment within the ASDA kind of organisation. The law places this additional hurdle that they have to overcome. So if you were comparing yourself to somebody who works sort of next to you in the same kind of building, um, the test is slightly different. But because they're comparing across establishments, in order to get off the starting blocks, they have to show that they're employed on what's called common terms. So this case was all about the court deciding, are the shop floor workers who are women employed on common terms to the com potential comparator in the distribution centre. Um, and essentially that common terms argument, really what it is, is the court saying, if we took this man, we took him out of the distribution centre and we popped him in the store where the claimants work, uh, even if that would never happen because of the nature of his job, if we popped him in the store, would he be on the same terms or would his terms vary? Because it's trying to basically weed out situations where there's a difference in pay that's because of geography or because of some historic factor, but not because of sex discrimination. Um, so that's like a rabbit warren of legal tests and hurdles, right? But fundamentally, what the court said in this case, which is really important, is this common terms test where you're comparing people across different establishments, which you can see is quite common in, in a retail context. A lot of the equal pay claims seek to do exactly that, to say women in stores, for example, men in the distribution centre. Um, when you're doing that, this common terms hurdle is really low, is what the court's saying. It's just there to weed out cases where there is, as I say, a sort of geographical rationale for the difference. So employers can't expect to use that test as a way to um, stop a case getting through uh, the threshold to a full hearing. So what the court didn't decide, and I think this is really important, they didn't decide that the jobs that the women were doing are of equal value to the job that the man's doing, because that's the next stage in litigation. They're just saying, yes, you can get the case through the door and make that argument. So it's an important case because it basically says, looking forward, it says to retailers and other employers, this is an argument that's not going to be well received if you go into court in an equal pay claim and try and create a lot of satellite litigation around whether or not there's common terms, the court's not going to be that pleased necessarily. But it doesn't tell us anything about whether or not those jobs are going to be of equal value. And that's where it'll get really interesting because that's where the sort of historic gender segregation comes into it when they'll look at the two jobs and say, do we think they are of equal value or are there differences between them other than sex? And that is later down the line in the next iteration of the case. Um, so bit of a journey, like really. Step one, yeah. That's right. A long, long journey. That's right. And it, I presume it's been going on 
quite a while then to even get it to this stage. Yeah, good few yeah. years now. I can't quite recall the date of the first um, piece of the jigsaw, but yeah, it's, and they do, um, there are sort of historic equal pay claims, not in this sector where, you know, claimants have sort of died along the way, sadly, mm -hmm. waiting for the case to kind of go through the motions because of that complexity. There are so many different stages. Uh, and levels and there's so much kind of data and evidence involved in them that they become these big beasts of litigation and I think that's kind of the message here the court saying look there's some quite interesting commentary in the in the judgment where the judge is saying look let's remember the point of this legislation essentially is to try to weed out um discriminatory pay to to find sex discrimination in pay structures we can't I'm paraphrasing here but this is saying we're, like, we're not that interested in creation of loads of satellite litigation that defers us from that um, agenda. It's quite an interesting kind of policy decision by the court. Yeah. Sarah, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think the, the, the clear thing sort of coming out of this case is any claimants who are looking to lodge equal pay claims have to be really clear and be prepared to wait um, for the courts to come to these decisions. So any litigation is going to take a long time mm. because some of these cases date back years and years. So I think, and the pandemic probably is going to make the courts process even slower. Um, but I think also from an employer's point of view, I think it's really important that you have things, your job descriptions are really clear, that you are trying to ensure that you have equality in all different areas of your your work so that you know historically in the ASDA case it was the men who were working in the warehouse and the women who were working on the shop floor well we should try to avoid those distinctions and make sure that you have equality um, and um, at all different stages of your workforce so that there can't nobody can raise that argument to say you know these and, and these jobs are are different and, and bring that on as an equal pay claim so for me that's what's really important is is ensuring that your workforce is balanced at every stage and you're you're then running much less of a risk of ever having these types of claims yeah absolutely so bigger picture issues at play there yeah. for for employers to to take on board cool so i suppose moving on then slightly there's an important distinction around equal pay and gender pay gap um, and before we move on to sort of gender pay gap would you Kelly be able to sort of just summarize again to remind us you know what are we talking about here yeah ab absolutely and you're totally right it's it's often really unhelpfully conflated equal pay and the gender pay gap and they're definitely related um, but they're they're different they're more sort of cousins than twins <laughs> so we've had we've had equal pay legislation which is what the the asda case we were talking about is 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 around since 1970 so we've had it for forever um and so the equal pay legislation that's about ensuring that women and men are paid the same as each other if they're doing the same job or a job of equal value so it's not about fairness of pay in a broader sense generally it's really about weeding out sex discriminatory pay differences so it's quite narrow in, in its focus and as as the asda case illustrates it's also about individual comparisons you know i'm paid x you're a guy doing the same job you're paid y why is that can can that be justified and so it's kind of as i say it's individual comparisons which is in complete contrast to the gender pay gap which is a much broader analysis so gender pay gap is saying, let's take a group of people um, and within that group, we'll look at what are the men paid on average 
and what are the women paid on average? And then we'll work out the gulf between those two averages. So you can see it's a very different kind of calculation. It gives you very different data. And the group that you're doing that analysis on can, can vary. So you can look globally, you can look nationally by country, you can look by sector, by age, by working arrangements. So it's really interesting to look at the part-time gender pay gap, for example. Um, and, and looking at those different averages can give you loads of really illuminating information about where the blockers are and the barriers to female progression. So at a workplace level, so for any individual employers, in the UK, since 2017, we've had legislation that obliges employers, if they've got 250 or more employees, to record and measure their gender pay gaps across their organisation and to publish it on an annual basis. Um, and the whole point of this legislation is the idea that transparency is a really good catalyst for change. So if we if we encourage or require organisations to measure these gaps, to look at the gulf and to put it out there for everyone else to see, then that will trigger um, a change. That's the kind of, so it's a stick, <laughs> really, as much as a carrot. Um, so I think what I always, I always sort of describe it is if you, where you see a gender pay gap of 20% in an organisation, that means on average in that business, for every one pound a man earns, a woman earns 80 pence. Now, it doesn't mean that a man and a woman sitting next to each other in a virtual office or a physical office are what he's earning a pound and she's earning 80p, not least because um, if that was an hourly rate, that would be not in line with national minimum wage legislation. But you see what I'm getting. It, it doesn't mean that because that would be an equal pay issue. Now, there may be an yeah. equal pay issue, but it's, as I say, it's much broader. Um, so then the interesting bit for me is what causes that gap. And that varies hugely by, again, by all of the measures I was just mentioning, by location, by sector, by employer. Um, but commonly, it's going to be any combination of a lack of balance at the recruitment and entry level, segregation of women in lower paid areas of the business, to so the point Sarah was making about, you know, an, a sort of uneven balance in different areas of a business, attrition of women, there are sort of pinch points in women's careers in particular around maternity leave, etc. And then a lack of progression and, and promotion of women into senior roles. So it's often a, a sort of intricate combination of lots of different uh, factors like that that cause it. The reality that um, the, the reporting obligations were suspended last year due to the pandemic. And, you know, this year the requirement is postponed until October. So I know there's been voluntary reporting. Um, happening um but you know where has that left us in terms of sort of detecting those trends that you were you were talking about especially on sort of sector levels you know coming back to retail is there anything you can share with us on on that kelly to begin with yeah i, I found it really frustrating i have to admit when it was certainly when it was effectively suspended last year because um and i know this i will come to the question laura but just let me like whinge on a little bit about it and then I promise I'll quit and you can edit that out that's absolutely fine um so yeah I do <laughs> so that the announcement came on the 24th of March right last year to say we won't be enforcing gender pay gap reporting this year because unprecedented uncertainty and pressure which undoubtedly of course every organization was facing un unprecedented uncertainty and pressure 100 percent. but the announcement kept if you were a private sector employer that was nine days before you were due to publish, like the, the last date 
for publication. For your public sector, it was four days before because they have a, a you know an earlier. So it didn't really give that much time. So to my mind, for a lot of employers, they would have already gathered. The, well, a lot had already published because that was a, a drop dead sort of threshold rather than the date you have to publish on. And the ones who hadn't, a lot of them would have already gathered their data as well. So basically, it was the government. It, it read to me as a sort of just stick it in a drawer, don't worry about it. And the and the problem is, even though it was well intentioned, I do think there's a risk. It sends this message that yeah, yeah you know, like equality, it's great and all that, but it's don't it's, worry about it for now. <laughs> exactly. When the house is in order and everything else is fine, and we've got a bit of time, we'll turn to it. But when mm. there's more important things happening just put it it's a nice to have which i think is really dangerous because the other thing about it it was it's really stark contrast with what they were saying the government was saying about filing of company accounts and i was looking back at this right the other day and they they issued a, a message saying if you know if just before the company accounts deadline it becomes apparent that there's you're not going to be able to because of um the effect of covid you can make an application to extend the period for filing. But if you don't apply to extend it and you file it late, you'll get an automatic penalty. So it's very, so there's a real contrast there, isn't there? It's like company accounts, super important. Uh, gender pay gap reporting, it's fine, it's fine. We'll talk about it another time. So I find that kind of a bit, just a, a little bit of bit sort of disappointing, to be honest. Anyway, as you said, we're back on it again this year and um, with a six month delay. So. They're not going to start looking at any enforcement until um, the 5th of October. So you know, we, we, we sh that what that at least means is that we'll have, you know, we should have a full kind of reporting um, sort of data set later this year. But, but you're absolutely right, Lauren. The difficulty is one of the massive benefits of this regime was the comparability that it gave between data year on year, both with, you know, one organisation comparing its own progress <laughs> and its employees and potential recruits etc but also on a sector level so um we without doubt this change in the regime will have diluted that comparability uh, in some shape or form or potentially eroded it because it, there will be organizations in, in the sector who haven't reported last year and so you know depending on the number that can kind of skew the whole thing so it's a little bit uncertain at the moment but what, from what we know um it looks like progress is still going in the right direction to closing the gender pay gap but it's it, retail is is in common with pretty much all sectors it's not quick to close um yeah and the, and the research that i've seen would suggest that a lot of it is to do with two of those factors i was mentioning before um disproportionate numbers of women in lower paid roles so a sort of um you know more women in the in the in the low paid roles than men and also less um less representation of women in the more senior higher paid management roles which is not unlike many other sectors including you know professional services financial services so it's not an unusual picture um but yeah what we what we don't yet know is the specific impact of the pandemic on this in the sector because we won't know that until we get those those figures and we can do that sort of analysis which will also be slightly hindered by the lack of um, comparability from last year um, I, I think also, Laura, that, that there was no need, as Kelly said, there was no need to delay, but actually it wasn't helpful for business in the long run to delay mm. because you still, uh, it, 
that there is an immediate impact on your employees, for example, in terms of potentially productivity, morale, mental health, those kinds of things. Looking at a report that that supports that you, you know, you're working towards um, leveling out pay and dealing with any gender pay gap, I think has an immediate boost to your employees um, mm -hmm. um, and demonstrates that there is an, a commitment there, even if there is. Um, you know, in most organisations, there is still quite a disparity. But if you can show that you're working towards that and you still published your report, mm. that demonstrates a real commitment to your employees, mm. which I think is a really important message in a pandemic. When people are working at home and don't have that same sort of level of connectivity, I think it's really important for them to feel that the company is working towards this and taking steps to address it. And by companies not publishing, to me, I think it shows that um, some of those organisations may not have the same commitment to that than the ones that did still publish. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So in effect, a really important way of communicating that commitment mm -hmm. um, by, by still publishing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose then just moving on. So I'd love to, as I was saying, just hear from you both and maybe um, Kelly, first of all, you know, what are your views, I suppose, as a whole around the gender pay gap reporting mm -hmm. framework mechanism, um, you know, how can it best be used um, as part of a fairness strategy, if that's mm -hmm. possible to sort of summarise for us on this podcast, you know, how do you how do you feel about it? How should employers be using it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it'd be no secret to Sarah because I'm always chewing her ear off about them, but I, I kind of love the gender pay gap regulations. I feel like I should have a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> it's a bit sad, isn't it? it sounds a bit sad. Um, I, I love them, but they're they're absolutely just one piece of a puzzle. They're, they're, they are not the whole, they're not the whole picture. Um, and I think, I think if they're pro properly understood and kind of cleverly used and effectively used, they can be really brilliant. So like in an ideal world, you know, every workplace would be equitable, where like every single person who comes through the door can bring their whole selves and can thrive and do the best they can be. But the reality is, you know, workplaces are just microcosms of broader society. So, you know, no workplace is going to be immune from those structural kind of structural prejudice and barriers that exist more broadly. So I think we have to recognise that they're not immune from it. And therefore, we need to take real deliberate action to try and unpick those kind of structural barriers and things and make positive changes. not going to happen without deliberate action. And I think gender pay gap reporting, I think of as a really useful tool for that exact process, because what the reporting regime does is it gives you a tool to shine a light on your business and say, Oh, I can see here there's a barrier. I can understand, you know, for example, I'm looking at my data and I can see from my quartile data that I measured that I don't have, I have such a disproportionately low number of women in the upper quartile that I think my gender pay gap is to do with lack of progression, for example. So even the process of measuring that has given you some really rich data, especially when you combine it with all of the other measures. Um, but the key absolutely is then what you do with it. So some countries, really interestingly, and this was sort of debated a bit in the consultation process before we got our regulations in the UK, because some countries have similar obligations, but they couple it with um, an obligation on the company to publish an action plan to close the gap. So to say, this is what a gap is. And by the way, this is what we're doing. Um, now, where we landed in the UK is we don't have that as a legislative obligation, 
but um, many organisations will choose to publish a narrative that effectively does that, that says, look, here's the story behind why our data is what it is, because it's always worth having that context if, you, if you're able to provide it. Um, and also it often says, this is what we propose to do in the future to try to close that gap. And that for me is the perfect use of this regime to say, get, we'll get the issue of gender parity, female progression on the board agenda, and we'll use it as a tool to work out where we are now to be transparent about it and to then like move ourselves forward on that journey. Um, and then I think the last thing I was going to say on that was that it works best if it's part of a broader um, strategy that's not just about diversity, but is about inclusion. So, you know, diversity is really important. It's about kind of getting seats at the table. It's about representation. But it, if you do that without inclusion, you're essentially bringing like women in this case at, to the table into an environment which doesn't value the individual differences that they bring because you haven't made it an inclusive culture. So that's a complete recipe for failure, isn't it? Um, so you've kind of got to focus, you use this as, and that's what I mean when I say it's just part of a picture because you've got to use it as, as a tool within this broader strategy that's about creating an environment where people can be and bring themselves and um, and thrive with all of the differences that they bring that are valued rather than accommodated, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Would you would you agree with that, Sarah? Yeah, definitely. And I think this year, particularly, um, the the um, reports will be really interesting because you can exclude employees on um, furlough leave where they're not paid full pay, for example. So that might distort some people's gender pay gap because they'll be excluding, particularly in retail, we talked about mm -hmm. where they may have a high level of female employees. It may distort, distort that pay gap slightly, but you can use the narrative. And I think that's what's often interesting is the narrative that you use in your um, gender pay report can really help avoid any negative publicity around um, that gender pay gap. And particularly if you're a large organisation where that might be reported in the press, for example, you know, and sometimes people can want to report name and shame the sort of worst offenders. I think being be using that narrative in the report to show what you're doing and also to explain some of the data can be really important and can actually be a huge motivational tool for the rest of your um, organisation to demonstrate that you are taking steps and you are doing things to, to help move the organisation forward. Um, so to me that sort of, I think that if you can it's not just, as Kelly said, you know, you can use the data in so many different ways, but I think imagine that, you know, lots of new recruits are reading that gender pay gap or, you know, people mm -hmm. that you're wanting to recruit uh, and they'll be looking at it. And if you use that narrative in, in a beneficial way, it can really make your organisation seem a really attractive place to work. Sure. And does that narrative, does that get published or is it up to you to publish that bit? Yeah, so it, it, exactly. It's up. To, it's up to you. So it's it's perfectly lawful just to publish the figures, and there might be good reasons for some businesses to do that. But I totally agree with yeah. what Sarah was saying there. That if you are able to to use that narrative, it's I, I think of it as the story. It's the stuff because we all know data and statistics are completely open to interpretation, and they tell you know they tell a different story for everyone who's reading them, don't they? So the narrative is a good opportunity, I think, for most businesses to give that that context. 
on to sort of our final sort of more statistical report type topic um, only because well I've dipped in and out of this um, and I just you know there was lots of headlines around it at the time I think it came out in March um, so the World Economic Forum's um, sort of report um, it looks as of four different areas it's obviously global but it breaks down uh, on country to country level so there's a UK scorecard um, I suppose I was really interested in the, the sector the section of it that deals with economic participation and opportunity, um, which is what we've sort of been talking about um, for the most part in this podcast. So what, Kelly, uh, I suppose, are there any sort of significant findings that jump out from you on sort of the global front um, in this report? And I suppose in particular, the UK side as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a very lengthy and mm. um, and it's full of such rich information the report I would definitely encourage anyone who's interested in this to kind of dip into it it's organized in in a way that's quite easy to to navigate as well um Mm. yeah for me the most stark finding which jumped out was that another generation of women will have to wait for gender parity now because in the in the 12 months of the pandemic Um, So previously, the predicted time for closing the global gender pay gap was 99.5 years. And that's increased by a whole generation to 135.6 years. So an entire generation of women in 12 months. And I think that just illustrates for me how hard fought these gains towards equality are and how easily or how quickly they can be lost. And, And again, it harks back to everything we were saying about the importance of sort of continuing to prioritize and focus on this stuff even in the difficult times um so in terms of laura the the, the sort of sub index around economic participation and opportunity um globally it, it was it says that we're around 58 percent progress towards gender parity so quite a long way to go the uk we're above above that sort of average point where we're 23 out of 156 countries general progress towards gender parity is ranked at 77.5 percent a little bit under that for the economic partici- participation sorry and, and empowerment sub index so we're kind of with we're, we're there, but we're not, you know, we're not leading on it, but we're not certainly not kind of lagging um, too far behind the rest of the world. But the, it's clear there's still quite a long way to go for, for every every country, really. What was quite interesting in the report is is the deep dive it does into into the sort of impact of, of the pandemic that's led to that kind of generational shift that I was just mentioning. So, you know, obviously, and this is said in the report that both men and women, and in fact, it doesn't say this, but all genders were severely affected by, or are being severely affected by the pandemic. But women have experienced a larger impact on multiple fronts, they say in the report. So women are often employed in sectors that have been directly disrupted by lockdown, social distancing, etc. And so that has meant they've experienced higher unemployment than men and a sort of slower re-entry into work. And, and again, I suppose that's been exacerbated by lower sort of hiring rates and promotions into leadership roles and things during the pandemic. Um, there's also evidence that the report points to that where women have continued to work during a pandemic, they've reduced their working hours more than men um, on average, and that some women have pulled back from promotions and leadership roles, which you know you can completely understand with people juggling you know additional childcare and elder care, etc. And then they talk in the report about what they call a double shift. And they mean by that the double shift, the kind of overlap of work responsibilities and care and how that's intensified during the pandemic for everybody, but particularly for households with children. 
and that on a sort of average basis that's still disproportionately fallen upon women so you've got this kind of perfect storm of school closures nursery closures um and inability to kind of rely on family access to care being difficult etc and that's kind of widening these existing labor gaps and the other worrying thing is that you know they say in the report that even a temporary exclusion from the labor market can have really long-term effects on economic opportunities for both men and women but we know that they are there are disproportionately more women in that sort of situation so it it's it, it does need proper attention if it's it's not going to recover itself um necessarily it's a bit i think of it a little bit like you know if you have a few bad nights sleep you can't just you can't recover the rem sleep that you've lost it's a little bit like that it's not just going to fix itself the, the the damage that's been done to those kind of parity gains um so yeah so some of the findings around that are, are pretty um worrying to be honest yeah, yeah pretty grim i suppose the positive sign is we have this data and data is empowering and you know the, it's incumbent on us to work out what we can each do as individuals and in our organizations and you know you're in government, in, in government, etc., big and small, to try to kind of contribute to bringing us back to where we were and getting on with that journey towards greater parity. So that that leads us to sort of the final um, conclusion, if there is one, um, <laughs> after, from our discussion. Um, you know, where where does that leave us post pandemic? How can we keep the debate moving? How can we keep the progress? Um, you know, how can we how can we shape that gender more gender equal recovery? I suppose. I was turning to you, Sarah, first. Do you have any thoughts on on that before we go back to Kelly? There is a large untapped workforce there who want to work and who are prepared to work, but have had to either take time out of the workforce because of of homeschooling, or who have been made redundant during the pandemic. So actually, there's um, if you are uh, an employer who is suffering, for example, from the labour market, you know, we've seen lots of um, uh, Europeans go back to their countries due to Brexit. So if you are an employer who is struggling to recruit, there is a large mm -hmm. untapped potential of women there available um, to work and who want to work, but who may need to um, to adapt that work environment due to childcare or other caring reasons and other responsibilities. So that's, that's really important to address if you um, want to recruit. I think also sort of making sure that um, we continue um, and understand the data of looking at furlough and how that, that has impacted your workforce when everybody's coming back to work and the economy's improving, looking at how uh, your workforce was impacted and what you can do to help that. I think, you know, working from home in some degrees has, has potentially helped a lot of, of gender equality because um, People have been home. They've also had childcare responsibilities or other responsibilities. They've been in and around the home. There's not. They're not commuting. Uh, so the, there's some real benefits from from what's come out of the pandemic to really help move the needle on on gender parity um, and make it easier to to move people into the workplace that uh, and move into either full time working that that weren't available before because of commuting and school runs and things like that. So for me, there is 
it's really exciting time because we've got an opportunity to influence and change the workforce and, ad and adapt it to make it more inclusive than ever. And, and I hope that most organisations will sort of take that opportunity to do that. Yeah, amazing. So wrapping it into that future of work debate, um, really part of that is looking at, at this issue as well. Um, yeah, fantastic. Um, and and Kelly, to, to you, you know, what what's do you have any? Pra I know it's very difficult, obviously, <laughs> practical advice when we're on a general podcast. But, you know, from yes. a, to our listeners, you know, what what takeaways might might you uh, be able to provide in terms of that post pandemic world and how we can shape things. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Laura, I think you've hit the, the nail on the head there, actually, because I think it feels like such it can feel like such an insurmountable problem. Mm. Um, you know, when we look at that World Economic Forum report and it's global and it's exacerbated and you think, well, what can what can I as an individual um, employee or even an individual leader or even an individual organisation, what can I do? And I think that's sometimes where um, where we get stuck is that sense of unless I've got some groundbreaking idea, I can't make a difference. And so what I would always say is that no one person has all the answers. If they try to tell you they have, they're selling you snake oil, right? It's a combination <laughs> of lots of little and some big, but but lots of little steps. And there's this there's this suffragette quote that I always go back to. Um, it was Alice Paul, and she said, you know each of us puts in one little stone and then you get a great mosaic at the end and I think that's the best way of looking at it that just do something ideally do something in the right direction <laughs> but do, doing nothing isn't an option because you know a workplace culture it's not this amorphous blob that is created out with all the people in the organization that just sort of sits there it, it's created by each of us every day in our interactions with people whether in the office or not and in the choices that we make or don't make about what we prioritise. So we're already contributing it to it, sorry. So what I'm saying is you're already not doing nothing, the double negative. <laughs> so it's being deliberate about what you're doing. So, for example, if you're a, ma a male leader, something as small or seemingly small as si and simple as saying loudly when we're back in the office, I'm leaving early to collect my children, just something as seemingly small as that can have a huge ripple effect. So it's not always the big policy changes or the, the the enormous kind of announcements, although they do have a place, it's those small things as well. And I think part of that is, is about focusing, like I said before, on the importance of inclusion and equity alongside diversity, about it being a core business issue to try to contribute to the right culture, each of us, and to treat that as, as, a, as a business priority, like any other business priority. And I think part of that as well, in terms of practical stuff, is if, if you're, if you have any kind of influence over reward in your organisation to think about, right, what are the behaviours and the values that we as a business encourage? And what are the behaviours and values that we reward? And is there a disconnect or are they aligned? Because, you know, if you're saying to your people, we want you to collaborate, we want you to cooperate, we really value that. But then you reward everybody on a kind of eat what you kill basis. What, what, there's a disconnect in the message. Or if you're saying we really strive for a flexible work environment where, you know, when you work or where you work is less important to what you what you do. But then everybody knows if you eat, sleep and breathe work, you get paid more. You're create, creating a disconnect. So it's it's kind of what I would say is use this like lens of equity when you're looking at everything look at reward through that lens, look at appraisal through that lens, look at sickness absence, just have that as one of your kind of testing points. Like what, 
what barriers are we creating here? What barriers are we not removing here? Um, what disproportionate impacts are, are potentially hidden just under the layers that might not be visible? And just to start and keep going. Start and keep going is what I would say, even when there are setbacks, because it's not a linear, it's a hard journey becoming more equitable and it involves difficult conversations, difficult decisions. It's not always easy. If it was easy, we would have all nailed it and we wouldn't be getting World Economic Forum, things like what we were just talking about. Um, so it's just keeping going as much as anything. Sure. And I think communicating that as well, communicating what you're trying mm -hmm. to do is really important too, because I think provided people feel there's progress being made uh, and that their organisation wants to make progress, that ultimately will, will make people happy to, to 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 sort of sit on the journey but mm -hmm. if, if it's what it's in organizations where you, you feel there is no commitment to that I think that's when you you know it's we're all going to have to work much harder I think in the future to create a culture because you know more people are, uh, might be home-based or you know in those circumstances so I think you know being able to demonstrate that you're taking steps along that journey and that you know how you want to involve your workforce to do that I think is you know is really going to see morale boosts in those areas and productivity increases because people are then very engaged by what their workplace is doing yeah I agree with that completely and sometimes I think it's about saying it's about not getting um, so bogged down in the data so using the data that you measure and the information that you've got to your advantage in terms of it gives you sort of insights that can help you build those tangible interventions that for your business because you know for example we have an attrition problem at this level or we have a recruitment imbalance at that level that's brilliant but then moving on from it and actually implementing some things because I think otherwise there is that real completely understandable danger of there is so much information out there both statistical and stuff from within your organisation, but also academic and research, and it's all amazingly valuable. But you could say, I'm just going to take the next 12 years to do all of the reading, and then I'll start on my journey, and we don't have that time. So it kind of learning as you go and learning from each other, and I find in this sector, it's a very, you know, in the inclusion space is really collaborative. Everybody is trying to, to push things in the same direction. Um, so join those committees and those um, industry groups and learn from each other because, as I said, no one, no one person or organisation has all the answers. It's about building up that knowledge um, within sector and outside the sector. And you can learn from other sectors as well. Um, oftentimes, you know, speaking to people who are looking at this in a completely different sector gives you just a really interesting vantage point that you maybe wouldn't have looked at if you were being very sector focused. So finding creative ways. Um, to get get into the problem and find solutions and that also keeps it from getting frustrating if if you're in a job where you're focused on e e um, equity and equality all the time it can get frustrating that progress is really it can be really slow without you know even despite the best intentions so finding ways to keep your energy up in that is really important um, and the other thing I would say is if you have control over this in an organization is to make sure that you don't silo this within just a specialist part of the business. There is absolutely a space for diversity inclusion specialists. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? But there absolutely is. And, you know, as I said, there is so much to learn and so much out there that, you know, real specialists bring such value to the table. But it is also something that all leaders in, a in the business have a say in and a responsibility in. And I think if you silo it, 
then you will make change much, much slower, much, much slower and much, much harder. What I'm hearing from you both, which is really nice, is that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's a real opportunity to make this topic an integral part of that future of work debate that we're all having. Um, why not? Why not make a part of that debate and small yeah. steps? Um, yeah, you can't conquer everything, but, but make a part of a deliberate part of that journey, which is all we can hope for at the moment, because huh? there's yes. so many moving parts <laughs> still to this. But to have it there front of mind. Um, so. Thank you for your insights. Um, lots of food for thought. Hopefully listeners found this of use. We are going to finish up for today because that's all we've got time for. So thank you so much, Kelly and Sarah, for taking time out to be on the podcast today and sharing all your information and all your insight and expertise. Um, we'll be back next month. So until then, take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.